if we could put the um, phones in the phone thingy, that would make my life so much easier. Basket. Yes, the basket. I'll turn this around. Okay. So yesterday we spoke about God having a will, desire, um, wanting, whatever word you would like to use. And the idea is that God causes things to be. And we're not being very specific yesterday as to what, what he causes to be. And when talking about causes, two questions that can be raised, there are many questions, but two that could be raised are, one, is the cause causing out of necessity? Or is the cause a contingent cause? Meaning, if I have the cause, doesn't necessarily mean I have the effect. Like if I have the sun, I have the light. If I have the object in the sunlight, it's necessarily causing a shadow. Or is it contingent, like the behavior of animals? That's, I could have the cause, but I may or may not have the effect. And then the second question is, is this cause arbitrary, accidental, meaningless, or is it have some sort of value-laden, purposeful um, quality to it, right? So for instance, when I took this cup, why did I take this paper cup as opposed to any of the other paper cups? Because it was on the top. No, I actually did not take a paper cup from the top to illustrate a point, which is that if I took the top paper cup on the top, you'd say, well, it's just because it was on the top. There's no real reason to it. So I specifically took a cup that wasn't on the top to illustrate the, the this, right? But beyond the fact that this was not the top cup, I don't care. It happens to me this was the second cup, but I could just have easily done the third cup or the fourth cup to illustrate my point that I intentionally did not want to choose the top cup to make this point. Okay. Wow. Yes. But that's if they're all the same kind of cup. Yes. Like if there was a green one and a pink one, it'd be different. Okay. Now, maybe. It depends on your particular, how attached you are to color. I don't think we're having coffee with a No, but I'm asking because then you'd be like, yeah. If I was drinking coffee from two cups and the only difference was whether they were pink or green, it would not make a difference to me. <laughs> no, not really. If it's pure green. No. It's pure green. Matching your house. Doesn't matter. sure? That you yeah. wouldn't paint. I don't know. I'm, I'm talking about me. So unappetizing now. I also don't mind eating off of blue plates, so. Okay. So, and then there are things which are meaningful, value-laden, etc. And when we understand the idea of causality, of things making sense, even though sometimes some aspects are arbitrary, there is always something that is significant or meaningful or valuable in the larger picture. And so if we're talking about God causing in a way that we can actually understand and talk about, right? And if not, then we should just dismiss the class. Then God causes things in a way which is contingent. He doesn't have to cause them. And there is some imbuing of things with value, meaning, purpose, whatever you want to call it. And so if you think about human beings, when we cause things in a contingent, value-laden, meaningful way, we just say, I desire it or I want it. Right? or I chose it, or I will it. And therefore, using those words to describe God's causality, simply to get clear that it's contingent and not necessary, and that it's value-laden and meaningful as opposed to arbitrary, that's fine. But then if we want to take other aspects of human desire and, and, and cast them onto God, we maybe we should be a little more hesitant as to whether it really makes sense to describe God um, as being motivated by an inner lack or things like that. That's where we left off yesterday. Yes? Okay. Now, 
Isn't this so exciting? It's like you have to actually choose to concentrate. <laughs> it, is a, it is an intentional choice. Okay. And when it stops at Shabbos. I feel like you're going to miss this now. No. Um, no. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. Have you ever heard the expression that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Okay. Thing looks like a nail. If you only have one tool to solve problems, then you just you think that every problem is the problem solved by that tool, okay? Um, which is something that we could like spend a whole class talking about, but I'm gonna focus specifically on one thing. One of the tools that we have is the ability to ask why. That is a great tool, it is a powerful tool. I don't know if it's our most powerful tool, but it's definitely in the upper echelons of our powerful tools. Okay, however, just because it is a powerful tool does not mean that it is useful in all situations. So let's first understand the meaning of this tool. How does this tool work? Asking why. What does it do? How do what do we accomplish by asking why? And then we're going to see if there are things that this is not a useful tool for. Okay. So children are um, cherished, notorious, I guess it depends on your mood, for asking why. How do you answer a child's question when they ask why? What is the appropriate and effective way to do that? Because. Because does not work. Or when you're older, you understand. What? Why do you think? Okay, so there, one second. So, 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 the first thing is, the first thing is, we want to make, we want, we want to, we want to differentiate between two, two goals. One is, is our goal to educate or is our goal to inform? If our goal is to educate, then whenever possible, we throw the question back at them. But let's take for, let's take for today's purpose that the objective is to inform, okay? So you actually want to provide an answer. You don't want to make them think about it, okay? But you're right. If my goal is to educate, then whenever possible, I should always throw the question back at them. Okay, so child asks, um, why, and you give an answer. Now, the answer should be true, okay? That's important. If you're not going to say tr truth, then you shouldn't say it, okay? What happens then when the child asks the follow-up question of why about what you just answered? So they say like, um, why is it light outside? And they say, well, because the sun is in the sky. And you say, well, why is the sun in the sky? Now you realize that you have a problem because if you answer something, what are they likely to say? And what? So, so um, what should you do once you realize that they can just keep asking why after everything you answer? Not talk. I don't know. I mean, at some point you were like, we haven't figured it out yet, or. Hashem. Okay, I want to be very clear. Using Hashem when you using Hashem like that is very bad for your child's yeah, education. No, because then the child hears in your tone of voice is Hashem is the word you use when you can't explain something and you're exasperated. Um, you should always use Hashem when your children just as like a, a, as an educational point. 
When you know the answer and the child will accept Hashem without asking further why, use Hashem. Okay. So like, for instance, if my children ask me, like my four-year-old, if she asks me why is the sky blue, I will say Hashem made it that way. Now, could I, could I explain to her beyond Hashem made it that way, why the sky is blue? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, then what, but that is just a more complicated thing of ultimately those are just things Hashem did that make the sky blue, right? So, I could, but but I have a goal in educating my I have a goal in educating my children that, that Hashem is real to them in a tangible way. Mm-hmm. So, if they first understand that Hashem is not being employed because I can't explain it, Hashem is the ultimate answer. Now, as they develop and mature, it's like okay, right? But the way Hashem makes the sky blue is different the way that Hashem gave us the Torah. So now, can you get into those specifics? And as they mature, you then fill that in. So instead of using Hashem as a as a, as a plug for gaps in your knowledge, what you're saying is that Hashem is the underlying true cause of everything, and all of our knowledge is actually making Hashem more tangible, more real. And then a lot of our issues about Hashem versus other explanations just don't develop in the mind of the child. Okay? It's really bad if you only employ Hashem when you can't say anything else. You should always employ Hashem, and then they ask a follow-up. Yeah, uh, of course Hashem did it, but more specifically, what's the difference between Hashem doing this and Hashem doing that? Then you make Hashem more real to people. This is, you know, yeah. Is it a problem if, like, let's say I don't know how why the sky is blue scientifically? Is it a problem if I say I don't actually know how Hashem did it, but I know that Hashem did it? So that's not a problem at all. Okay. But um, I mean, I'm biased because my father was really good about this. Whenever I asked a question, he always would make sure to convey two things: that. Um, it's always the ultimate answer is always Hashem and there is something that we can understand and if I don't know what it is that doesn't mean that, you, that the answer isn't there and I will do my best to help point you in the right direction so the problem is saying Hashem and we can't figure it out right because then the child gets the message that Hashem is the thing that adults use when they don't know what to do with it and know. that's a problem in educating your children if you, how can you have a relationship as an adult with something that in childhood you got a sense of as the adult's way out of dealing with things they can't deal with doesn't work. So. But then what about when people say it's all up to Hashem now? Like, it's the same problem. Like for me. When you see, when someone says it's all up to Hashem only when they can't deal with things, then what message are they sending themselves and other people? Hashem has a crutch. That's right. Yeah. But then the question is, what is if you have done all you can to ensure this thing? And it's just like now that it's That is now a very good question, but it's not for right now. Okay. okay. So getting back to, so getting back to the thing. If you get the sense that the child is going to keep asking why, 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 the worst thing you can do is to say, well, because of Hashem. <coughs> and then you're just ruining the child's religious experience. Don't do that. Okay, so here's the thing that you have to do. Number one is you have to differentiate between whether the child is asking the question in a genuine manner or the child is being obnoxious. If they're being obnoxious, then you call them out for being obnoxious in an age-appropriate manner. Yes. Um, but let's assume for argument's sake they're not being obnoxious. Okay, so we've limited the scenario to something very specific. The child is asking why. The child is asking follow-up whys. But these whys are motivated by genuine curiosity, not trying to be obnoxious. So now what do you do? Do you know the answer to the question? Let's assume you know the answer. Because if you don't know the answer, then you should just be honest and say, I don't know the answer, but I have a good idea that you could look here or look there. When I was a child and I asked my father questions and he didn't know the answer, if he knew somebody who might know the answer, he would take me over to them and show and say, this person might know the answer. I want you to talk to them. So, yeah. 
I once had a whole question of which of which which pharaoh was the pharaoh of Mitzrayim because my my cursory knowledge of Egyptology didn't make sense which pharaoh it could be. And I asked my father, and he didn't know, so he took me to a guy in Shul who was very into archaeology and history. And he sat and talked with me for an hour about it. And he, we narrowed it down a few possibilities. And like, but it's not clear, and that was that. But no, these are important things. Like, you have to give a child the ability to ask questions. Okay, but what do you do if they keep asking fuck why, 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 why? And you can't turn it back at them and say why. You and you're not, your goal here is to, not to educate them, but to actually inform them. Mm-hmm. So you want to answer. You could say, like... Can you direct them to another resource? Say, like, this is a person to talk to. Maybe you want to read Let's assume book. that you know. No. Let's assume you know the information. So you don't have to do that. But they're going to ask why about that. And then what? Like, even if you have... This is just going to keep going on for, like, five hours. Okay, so let me, let me explain to you why this... What, 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 what you're missing. When someone asks the question why... What we usually think is happening is not what's actually happening. What we usually think of happening is you have this thing and they're asking why. I'm like, why is that the case? But that's actually not what's happening. What's usually happening is there's two things. There's a larger context which they've taken for granted and there's this other specific thing and they don't know how to place the specific thing in the larger context. So in other words, like this. Um, the m- marker? Yeah. Which color do you want today? Actually, I think I have a... No, that, that, that'll work. Okay. Okay, so this is often what we think is happening. There's some fact, and the child asks why, and so you have to answer that with another fact, and then the child asks based on that, why? And then you have to have another fact. And when is this going to end? When you have to go to school. Okay, but that's actually not what's really happening. Where's the eraser? What's really happening is this. The child actually's mind starts out with two things. There's a fact. There's a context. And when they're asking why... The question is, what links these things, two things, together? Yeah. Is that a schema? Yeah. Huh? What's a schema? <laughs> I'm going to explain. So there's a whole sense that the child has of this is just the way it is, and he's fine with that, or she's fine with it. It doesn't really matter, okay? If you can link this fact back to something the child is already okay with, then the child will automatically stop asking why. They don't care. It's not that... So... For instance, this is why at some ages, if you get back to grandmother bought it for us, then they stop asking why, and at other ages that they keep asking why, because at some ages, like the fact that grandmother buys things is just a fact of the universe that's just obviously true, and so anything that's tied back to you know Bubby's gift giving is like now it's understood. But at some point, they start to understand that Bubby's gift giving is part of some larger context of reality, and now they have. So the why comes when there is a disconnect between some fact and our larger context of what we take for granted about reality. Which means the trick is to figure out what does the child see as the fact, what is the child's larger context, and then how many steps do you want to take connecting the two of them together, depending on how much time you have and how sophisticated the child is. So if the child asks why is the sky blue, you have to figure out, okay, what is the larger context that the child is already working with? 
what is the disconnect between that and the sky being blue, and how many steps can I and do I want to take to connect them back together? And then you can answer the question, and they'll be satisfied, and then they'll have to do whatever they do. So why is not real? Why is always linking two things: the fact and the context. If you don't have a context to work off of, is why going to get you anywhere? Because then this is where people so I'll just yeah, but why? But why? But why? But why? Like people stop asking why in their minds for themselves when some fact is linked back to the context. It's pointing out a gap between some fact about reality and the larger context that we, at this point, understand about how the world is and, and what, what is and isn't the case. And that's, that's tricky to answer because do I know exactly what the context in your mind that you're working off of? No, I have to guess. This is one of the reasons why when you come and ask me about how to answer someone else's question about why, I'm very hesitant to do that because... The why is never just about the fact. The why is about linking the fact back to. So even if I know exactly the fact you're asking about, I still need to know what the context in which you're working from. So when the Talmud asks about a law, why is this the law? It's asking a different question than when somebody who walks into a Chabad house the first time is asking, why is this the law? Because the Talmud and that person are working in very different contexts of what reality is and isn't. So what ant works for one will not work for the other. Make sense? Okay. So now that I know about this tool, I know if I, if I have a something, a fact, that fits into a larger context, and I want to make sure that it really fits, the way I can examine that is by asking the question, why? What are two things, therefore, that I cannot ask why about? A fact without a context. And the context itself. Those are two, th- a fact just isolated with no context, that why, like, yeah. The pen is black, why? Mm. Wait, just one second, why? It came that way. What? Well, am I asking you, am I asking you, like, am I asking you for, like, I understand, um, I understand the, 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 the how, things are made in factories and I'm asking why the factory chose to make it black or I'm asking for the chemical explanation of what in the chemicals make it. Like, what is the context I'm working off of that doesn't fit with the fact that it's black? Or I'm asking why the, why the Shiva purchased a black marker, right? What, what, what is the context in which I'm not, the fact is not being linked up with? If you don't know that, you can't answer the why. So an isolated fact without taking something, some context doesn't have really a why associated with it. And then the other thing is the context itself the larger context doesn't have a why. Yes. So in the, in the example with the child, the context being that grandma buys gifts, at a certain point, that child might question, ask why that's right. to the context. But now that's not a context anymore. That, what, so it shifts. That's right. That's what happens as we, as we grow, is that what used to be the context in which everything else is framed itself just becomes one little fact. It's like, um, you know, your parents are your parents. <laughs> Not back to this one. No, this is actually more. Your parents are your parents. When you're a child, that's a context for your whole life. As you become adult, you realize, no, that's a fact. Like your parents are people beyond the fact that they're merely your parents. And the fact that your parents has to be contextualized in the larger. And then you find a stuff out of it. It's like, what? Well, weird to find out that your parents did things when you were, they were teenagers. That doesn't fit with your sense of who they are. Right? Oh, because all this... So you're, you're right. It's the same thing. So what's, when you're smaller, yeah, when, 
<laughs> so when, when, when your context, right, so what happens is what used to be for people, because we grow and we develop, what used to be the larger context becomes just one little piece of some other larger context, right? That's what, we, that's what happens. We learn, we grow, we explore, and yeah. And so that's right. So things that didn't need an explanation, there was no why when I was seven, need a why when I'm 17. Yeah. That's also, by the way, why you also reverse, is that you shouldn't therefore assume because the person doesn't have a why that there's something lacking in their life. Because maybe their life is just smaller and the thing, that thing for them is the larger context and for you it's just a detail. Like, um, why are you looking at someone else's why? Well, because sometimes when you don't have a good, let's use an example. Let's say, for instance, um, a child, why does Hashem, why does Hashem, um, why does Hashem give us the Torah? Now, do you have some? A lot of you are like I don't, I'm not really sure. That's a big question. It's a big issue. I'm insecure. I don't feel like I have it fully figured out. How do I put that in a larger context to understand reality? Blah 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 blah. And you have a child, and he's like, and the, the child to them, like Hashem gave us her, is is the context of life, and so they don't need a why. And you, because you're uncomfortable with it, because you don't have you don't have the why, and you, then you can sometimes project that into your relationship with them, and that's not a good thing. Now. The other thing that was also the case to realize that that person then will grow up and just because they, you know. So then how do you shift the context or get the context? That, that's, that, uh, frankly, that's, that's, that happens naturally until, the, until your 20s, just by your physical maturing. And then the more you spend time introspecting and reflecting and dialoguing with other people and reading, then things are going to, the context is going to shift. And that you can do the rest of your life. But some people, they just, you know, flat, you know, level off at 26 and the whole context of their life is basically what they were there at 26 and that's the end of it. Yeah. So when you were drawing that distinction between educating and informing, you were basically suggesting that like asking the follow-up question to the child is only when you're not seeking to give them the answer. But it sounds like even if you want to just give them the answer, it's important to ask the follow-up question to figure out what it is that you're working with. Or you can know them already. Yeah, 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 yeah. If it's like your son. But right, I'm saying, but I'm saying, when I say throw a question back at them, is to get to make them figure it out themselves. Is the goal here to train them how to wield the why tool independently, or is the goal to just provide the answer? But you're right. If I don't know the context, I do need to figure out follow up. I need to ask follow up questions. I can't answer the why. Right. Okay. So, again, isolated facts, there's no why, and a con- the larger context, there's no why. Okay, now, you can do something which is a very important thing to do as an adult, which is that you can, you can, you can actually artificially create context, which is like, so we're going to use the example of economics for a second. Economics is the study of the fact that people desire things on the one hand and are willing to expend desirable things on the other hand to get the desired things, right? We expend resources to get, things that, to get resources. And when you have a lot of people who have a lot of desire, a lot of different resources, and willing to expend resources, all sorts of interesting things happen. Okay. But notice you're taking for granted that there are beings who desire resources and are willing to expend resources and make some kind of judgments as to what is most effective way of doing that. Yeah? Those, now, those things themselves could become the, study of the, become the subject of study and ask also questions about, like, why do people desire things and why do they desire what they desire and blah, 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 right? And then you'll be studying psychology. Or you can just take those things for granted. Psycho- what was it? Psychological economics or something? Behavioral economics. Uh, 
Behavioral economics, yeah. You, you, but I, I want, I'm using the classic distinction to illustrate a point. Or you could just take that all for granted and study economics. And what that means is that you can say that even though this fact itself needs to be explained, I can just grant it for the purposes of this inquiry. And it's the larger context. And that's how we create so-called academic disciplines. Right. Chemistry works. Right. So if you can explain something in biology down to chemical properties, you're done. You've achieved it. But to the chemist, that's not an explanation. Right. So you're talking about proof by contradiction, like basically assume something is true. No, I'm saying I'm saying that anytime you're trying to understand why something is the case, you have to have already something that you're taking as a given. Right. Now that could be something that really truly is a given in your life, your real context, or you can artificially make a context for the purpose of studying something. So if I want to study the stock market, I can just take human nature as a given without asking, well, why is that human nature? But I can't then go study psychology that way, right? So for instance, in Talmud, what do they take as, a, as granted? They take for granted that the words of the sages of the Mishnah are the ultimate truth and will of God. Okay, well, once you take that for granted, that really does change how you're going to try and understand things, right? Now, even if I don't agree with that, I can still take that for granted in order to understand what the Talmud is trying to say. Okay? So there is this idea that there's the real context, which is the real scheme of the real framework in which you really understand reality for yourself personally, subjectively. And then there's the artificial one you can create in order to engage in a f- field of study. Right, so the, you know, um, okay, is that clear? But you can never ask why about the context. I mean, you can do it if you want, but it's like trying to turn a screw with a hammer. I mean, it's just not going to help. Right? I don't, I don't, you hit, hit the screw all you want, it's not going to turn. I get that maybe that's not going to get you where you want to be, but you can still ask, like in, in terms of the nesting of like science, you can still be like, Okay, so then how is chemistry working? But then what you're doing is, you're again, you're saying that that, wasn't a, that was only a context in a limited sense for the purposes of doing something, but it's not truly the ultimate context, and that's why I can ask about it in some larger context. Right. You see what I'm saying? And that's, well, the minute you ask about the context in light of a larger context, what you're saying is that context is really just another fact. Right. So you're never asking about the context as the context. Oh, this answers the question is that, so is there an ultimate context, a context which cannot be contextualized? It contextualizes everything else, but nothing contextualizes it. God. God, that would be like a basic definition of God, is God is the contextualizer, God is not contextualized. So what does that logically mean? You cannot ask why about God. Not because it's a religious thing, it just logically doesn't make sense. Because when you're asking why, you're saying this is the fact, this is the context, how does this fact make sense in light of the larger context? And I can make sense of a, larger, of a smaller context because it's not really the larger context. But if you have something which is the ultimate context. That's, you can't ask why about God. That's, right, because right, there's no larger context that God fits into. Now, I can ask... That's right. Because God is the cause of all, not caused by anything. He's what makes everything else be what it is. Nothing makes him be what he is. So it's not possible for God to be a fact. Right. Now, what this, by the way, means is that most of our discussions about God is not really talking about God, but our conception of God. 
does affect are those black people who are um, atheists? So there's a whole discussion in Jewish literature about when you're then talking about God, how are we supposed to make sense of that? Are we talking about... So there's different answers. Some answers we're talking about human understandings of God, but not God himself. Some saying we're talking about revelations of God. Some things we're talking about concepts of God, which have no bearing on what God really is. But, but the thing is, if you're asking why about God, it's not God. Because the, if the re- question why is a, is a real question to you, that means you've isolated some fact about reality and you're trying to fit in the larger context of reality, but God is the thing that gives context to everything else. It's very trippy. Yeah. So I feel... By the way, I want to, I want, I want to just before... If, if, I want to move from this to things that other things are like that that are also... That have this quality. They're not God. This is not like... I don't want... This is not special pleading that God is different. There are other things that are like this as well. Such as? That's what I want to get to. So I just want to be... If your question is... Has to do with about the uniqueness of God in this... God is not unique in this respect. Um... I, I, I want to take issue with what you said, and maybe like you'll say it more clearly to challenge what I'm saying. I, I feel that, in my experience, there are people who ask why questions about God because their context is something totally godless that they've grown up in mm-hmm. and experienced, and then they learn, like maybe not even a fact of God, they just learn that that God that God what is. What is God? What is God? I don't know. So you're saying that they are learning a particular attribute and then they're trying to fit into their godless context. Right. Like how can there be a creator? How can there be a benevolent being? Right. So let's say like this. Like, like my larger context is that logic, that, that everything that exists is logically coherent. Let's say that's my larger context. Okay. Sure. And then I hear about this idea of some, there is a being which has infinitely benevolent and infinitely knowing and infinitely capable. And then I will run through a simple computation in my head, well, that's a contradiction because if you have infinite benevolence, it means you're kind without restriction, and you're infinitely knowing, so you know about all the suffering, and you're capable so you can prevent all the suffering, then the logically there wouldn't be suffering, and there's suffering, so that doesn't make any sense. Right. Okay. For instance, I feel like that's a classic point where people that's are hundred. That's 100%. And this and God is, is not their context. But, okay, but here's the thing. God is not... The God is not the trifecta of infinite benevolence and infinite knowledge and infinite capability. Those are con- human concepts. And in fact, um, just to be very, very clear about this, do you know one of the things that Avram Avinu figured out, Abraham, our forefather? One of the things he figured out is that God is not infinitely this and infinitely that and infinitely that. Okay, one of the things that, Ash- that Avram discovered, one of the first things he discovered is that Hashem is not a physical thing. Another thing he discovers slightly later on is that Hashem is not a multiplicity. Hashem is one. Right? Just one second. Well, if Hashem is not one, so if Hashem is one, so, so what he realized is that any time you would divide Hashem into having different powers or abilities and they would all be infinite, you would run into a problem of you would have basically what you're saying is there's a bunch of mini gods. In other words, what Avram realized is that believing in an infinitely powerful war god and an infinitely powerful peace god doesn't make a lot of sense because what happens when they fight? If you have an infinitely powerful god of war and an infinitely powerful god of peace. Who believes that though? What? Idolaters? What? 
There are pagan beliefs that are like that, yeah. Okay, you're not talking about our conceptions of... No, 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 just, just wait. If you have an infinitely powerful war god, an infinitely powerful peace god, we understand that that wouldn't make a lot of sense? Yeah. Okay. So then, what, what Avram realizes is, well, well, that's essentially the same problem as if you have... Uh, 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 could God make a rock so big even who, who can't lift? If God has infinite anger and infinite compassion? Is, you can just take that whole problem of two infinite beings and make them two attributes of one being, and you still have the same logical problem. So therefore, we concluded, God has no attributes. He... One second. It might be that we don't have the ability to understand what, how God does things, and so we think of God as being infinitely benevolent, but that's just a figment of our mind. It's not a real description of God, and therefore all of these paradoxes fall away, which is why the real answer to all of these questions is that God is not actually infinitely this and infinitely that and infinitely that. And so again, I, my point is that if God is really the contextualizer of everything, he is not defined by these concepts. What are his actions? Well, that's a question. Is these even have attributes? Maybe the only thing we can know about God is the effect. Or we should really have a couple of things. Yeah, but didn't you say Hashem has infinite resources? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, he said he didn't expend resources. You might have heard he has infinite resources. Okay, expand on this. This is well, there's a very infinite resources that means that I, I do things the way people do things by expending resources. It's just I never exhaust of the resources. And that is not what we're saying. We're saying is that he doesn't accomplish things by expending resources. Okay. So therefore, there's no issue of resource expenditure. Okay. No, the, the, this, is, this is correct. And the, the, way, the way the Zohar puts it is that if you're thinking about it, it's not really God. If you can articulate it. And, and as a fact, it's, it is a concept of God or an attribute you associate with God. It's not actually God. But there are things God is Yeah, he's not, he's not this eraser. But he is. Oh, I thought there was a God and everything. Maybe. Like, yeah. But let's, let's stay focused, yeah. <laughs> My question may be like exactly what we're saying not to do. But why, why either did Hashem make itself, or why is Hashem so complicated and that we, that we can't understand? Like, why are we more capable of understanding? Like, on like a really large level. So, this is, this is, so the, the, the... the so, if God has no Well, gender is also an attribute. One second. I want to stay focused. There's a whole... One of the branches that forms of this discussion is trying to make sense of what, how we then make sense of this idea that God has attributes or doesn't have attributes. And, but that's not what I want to talk about right now. Okay. I, what, I, what I want to go back to is the fact that... that the, the, the place in the mind for God, if you're going to put God in your mind, is the thing just on the other side of the horizon. Meaning, whatever you understand, the larger context for that that makes that be true, that's God. So, the, 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 the thing that, again, contextualizes, but it is not contextualized. The cause that is not caused. Now, you're saying, well, I can't make sense of that. You're right, because we make sense of things by placing a fact in a context. So the, the last context, the ultimate context, is never something you actually make sense of. It's like the horizon. It's the edge of what you understand. Okay. And therefore, you can't ask why about it. And so we'd say, if you're asking why about God, then you're not actually asking why about God. You're asking why about something you calling by the word God, but it's not actually what we mean in Judaism by God. 
Right, that's a good metaphor. That if you need tongs to create tongs, then you need to start off with the first tongs that weren't created by chicken. Right. Well, the chicken was created first. That's what it says in the Torah. Okay, but it's true. It literally says the chicken. Yes. Um, when Moshiach comes... No, I'm not going to answer any when Moshiach comes questions. I have too much to get through and only another half hour. Sorry. I'm sorry. Some other time? Yes, but not right now. I'm not opposed to answering questions, but we have to stay focused. Okay, so there's another thing. There is a word in English. It's one of my favorites. The word is Ought. I like that word for many reasons. One is because people don't use it a lot. And words that people don't use a lot. Um, and words that people don't use a lot that actually carry a very, a very profound and important meaning that we, we mean the meaning all the time, but we often struggle to get the word that really captures that. I like words like that. Um, there's a few other words like that, like noble. People don't use the word noble so much anymore. But it, it captures something very specific that we care about in life and we don't use a word for it, so we struggle. We, we substitute other concepts. Ought. <coughs> So, what does ought mean? Should be. Okay. Explain, like, explain what that means. Like, pretend I don't I have no idea what you're talking about. Try and, like, explain it to me. That's the way it is. That's the way it is? An ideal way to be actualized. What? That's the way it looks. Okay, so let's start like this. I'm going to take for granted right now that some things are and some things aren't. Is versus is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. Ought means like this. If something is and it ought to be, then leave it. If it is, and it ought not to be, destroy it. If it ought, not to, if it ought to be, and it isn't, create it. And if it ought not to be, and it isn't, don't, don't do anything that brings it into existence. Is that a quote? No. But that's pretty much the, But that's, that's, that's basically the idea. In other words, what you're saying is, you're making value judgments about is and isn't. That's what you're doing. When you say ought, you're saying, there's one thing. The eraser is in my hand. Okay, it is. Fine. It's not in my jacket. But then there's a separate question is, is that, is that is, should that be changed? Or should we just leave that is the way it is? We're making a value judgment about the is and isn'tness of things. Sounds like a doctor's suit. Yeah. Ought is, is making value judgments about is's and isn'ts. That's what it is. Ought yeah. is making value judgments about is and isn't. If all you're going to do is describe reality as it is and describe what isn't, meaning that, you know, the eraser is in my hand, it's not in my jacket. If you just make only is and isn't statements, do you ever get to ought statements? No. No. Okay. Now, just a little observation about modern science. How does modern science purport to work? Things ought to work. What? Something, no, is true until there's an Well, the world is however it is, right? Yeah. Then you observe how the world is, right? Mm-hmm. 
And based on how you observe how the world is, you make predictions about how the world is. And then you go and observe the world and see, is the world according to the way you predicted, right? Right? So you look at what is and isn't to predict what is or isn't, and then you confirm that based on what is or isn't. Well, it depends what kind of why you're talking about. Yeah. Well, it depends what you mean by by why. If you mean why is a fact linked to a context, which is really what people. But if you mean why in the ought to sense, then you're right. So there's this huge problem. There was a famous non-Jewish philosopher who said this is what's called the is-ought gap. That if all you're working with is is, you never get to ought. Doesn't matter. You can look it up if you're really interested. Doesn't that say in Pratyabot that you should credit people's ideas? Torah. It says that when you're talking about Torah ideas and the sources in the Torah. Okay. I'm sorry, should I stop? No. Okay. So now. But if only what you're looking for is... If all you're working with is is... Yes? If all you describe is what is versus what isn't, you never get to ought. And ought, you have to do this other thing called making a value judgment, okay? So now, here's the thing. If I, so if my fact, and this is the point, okay, going back here. If the fact, if the fact is an is, and I'm asking the why, then what's the larger context that it have to be? Think about that. Why is the marker black? It is black because something else is. Right. It is. What? It's not ought to be. No, is's are linked back to is's. Right. The marker is black because this is the case, because that is the case, because that is the case, because that is the case, until something that we just say is that's the case. If now if I ask a separate question, why ought the marker be black? Why is it good that the marker? Why is the marker being black valuable? Because it's useful. Contrast. What this one just saying? Yeah. If I'm asking an ought, then I have to come back to an ought. Oughts go back to oughts. Isses so, go back to isses, and what oughts, go back to oughts? Oughts go back to oughts. Ought. Not what? Are you going? Yeah. No, no, but I'm saying does what also go back to what? What? We're not talking about what. What is in the process? If it is, it is, what is all this? We said that we don't go back to Hashem. We're not doing much right now. Ultimate climax. Wait, wait, wait. I feel. I hear what you're going. I want to get to that. Either later today or next week. Okay. Yes. So, how do we. Can we change it? Does it change? If it's. If something is because something was, or because something will be. Because those are just adding time to is. So it can work in any Yeah, yeah, those are all just variations of the word is. In fact, if you speak Hebrew, you can see that because all those words are all literally variations on the same root. Okay. Um, so let's give an example, okay? So if I ask. Okay, we're just do this like the way most people learn about in high school, whether this is fact or the case is irrelevant right now. If I ask. Okay, and does, is, these are all the same versions of the same thing, okay? So, okay, so if I ask, why does the marker fall when I let go of it? What's the answer? Gravity. 
Okay, but gravity is a word, so be more because specific. It is because the Earth has more mass. Because so I would say no. So I said I would say this because the Earth has mass. So that's an is. The marker has mass. That's an is. Right. And masses attract to each other. That's an is. And so those three ises explain why the marker drops. No, I mean, you have to also talk about why the marker drops rather than the earth rising. That actually both happen. Well, no, because it's... Well, well, no. Yeah, they, why do we experience the that's, marker? That's fine. Why fine. does fine. mass attract fine. to each other? Ah, then I have a question of why does mass attract each other, right? And then you... Cap, and then you, at that point, you have a serious problem because... That's an off. No. No. So then you have to find something that's more fundamental in your understanding of reality than masses attracting. And guess what? When you observe the world and do that, it's kind of hard to find anything. And so that's what physicists call fundamental properties. Right. Okay. That's their name for context that we can't contextualize. Of Hashem? Yeah. That's their Hashem, if you will. It's a pretty, it's a pretty late, it's a, it's a pretty shallow Hashem, but whatever. So gravity is considered one of those things? No, gravity isn't, because, it, 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 it gets more technical. Like, if you, if you, if you get more technical and into general typical, it's different. Okay. Let's do, let's do a few other things, right? Okay. So if I say, if I ask, why is there a rainbow? So if I explain that there is light and light has these properties and water is, there's water and water has these properties. By understanding the properties of light and water and air, then I understand that, you know, why there's a rainbow. So the is of the rainbow is based on the is of the water and the is, right? Is's are based on is's. Yeah. Okay. Now, why should, why ought you eat? Why should you eat? Why is it a good thing for you to eat? Because you should be alive. Because if you don't eat, you'll die, and dying is bad. So you notice how you are, right? So you're using the oughtness of being alive to justify the oughtness of eating. Why you should eat is based on why you should be alive. Now if I ask you, well, why should you be alive? Because if you can't explain why you should be alive, then you haven't fully explained why you should eat. Okay, but let's not be religious for a moment. No. Well, what if, what, so, so I'm alive now and I'm going to die later, so I'm not eating, like, what, I don't have to eat. Like, like, like if, if there's no value laden, and if, if my continuing living is not value laden, then I can just not eat and it's fine. Wait, wait, I want an answer to my question. Why should I eat without quoting scripture? Don't quote scripture. Why should I eat? Why should I eat so that I should live? Okay, why should I live? Why is life valuable? What? One second. Before... One second. Two things. One, so once you've passed menopause, it's okay to starve yourself to death? Is that what you're saying? Okay. Second thing, for men who don't have this problem, for men who don't have this problem, so what you're saying is that you're, you're saying is that I should live so that, there, so that other people should live. But then you can just ask about those people why they should live and you haven't really explained anything, right? Have you? Because each person is just being, uh, my living is just based on the other people that I'll create living, but their life would then be based on the other people. Like, okay. What? And what? Okay, fine. So let's take this. It's called hedonism, right? That why should you live? Because when you're living, that enables you to experience pleasurable experiences. 
Why can we be hedonistic but not religious? But why do we want to because because I because I, I want to explore the concept, and when you ever quote scripture, then then people's minds tend to shut off. So, yeah. okay, now let's see. So what then? What's the point of experiencing pleasurable experiences? What? Why? Why should I do that? Fun. <laughs> now here's the thing: if you say because it feels good, then you're just saying I should experience pleasure because it's pleasurable. So you didn't really explain anything, that's did you? A, wait, that's relating an ought to an is. No. Yeah. Why? Well, yeah. This is pleasurable. Therefore no, I asked ought why to. ought I experience, you said why ought I eat in order to live? Why ought I live in order to experience pleasure? Why ought I experience pleasure? Because experiencing pleasure is pleasurable. But what yeah. you're really saying there is I ought to experience pleasure because experiencing pleasure is a thing you ought to do. You're using, you're using the oughtness of pleasure to justify the oughtness you're of pleasure. The word in the, in the you're just, the thing is being so. Now, here's the issue that I'm getting at, and you can do this with anything. Anytime you investigate an ought all the way back, you just get to something which is. It's, right, the expression that was used by the founding fathers, and he says, we hold these truths to be self evident. You always end up with a self evident ought. Now, by self evident, I don't mean self evident to everybody, I mean self evident. To whoever's the aughts is being... So if A is valuable because of B and B is valuable because of C, at some point you get something that's just inherently valuable. And why is it inherently valuable? Just, I don't know. It's just that's inherently... Like and, and that's the larger context. Okay, fine. So you basically... And that's ending up with an is. It's an no, is. it's... I agree with Batya. That it, it is a fact that this feels pleasurable or it is a fact that we believe... Like we have an innate belief that we should stay alive. That, yeah, but but but, but 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 that but that doesn't really do the work of justifying it. But art is based on a moral code, and fact is based on a set of principles of reality that we adhere to. Okay, well, no, because no. <laughs> I'm using morals are one kind of art. They're the most interesting kind, but they're not the only kind. What's the other kind? What? What's the other kind? Um. For instance, if you, if you, I think most of us would say that a lot of what we do in life is not driven by a moral code, but is just pure self-interest, right? But their self-interest is this, right? I have the sense that, that, you know, I ought to take care of myself. And given the fact that I ought to take care of myself, I ought to do all these other things. But now if you challenge me, is that moral? Like, I don't know if it's so moral. In fact, maybe if it was moral, I wouldn't do those things, right? So we have the ought of self-interest versus the ought of morality. But yeah. I, in other words... At the end of the day, I, I, I hear what you're saying, is that at some point you get to just an ought that is, but you're not really explaining anything. That's my point. You just accepted that there's an ought, or you just, it's self-evident to you that there's an ought. So that is not really being explained by an is. You're not saying, so you I, take self-interest. I believe that it's not explaining. That's, that's all I meant. That's all like I meant. It's more of a fun, like there is like a hierarchy there where oughts can come back to is's. Right. In other words, like this. If you start off with the fact that there is just something that ought to be. So you stay with people. You, and this is where we ter- you start using words like nature. It is the nature of people to be self-interested. Yes. Once you take that, now you can have a series of oughts. Since I'm self-interested, I ought to take care of myself, and I ought to take care of myself. I ought to prioritize me over you, and if I ought to prioritize me over you, I ought not to give away my, my money to Sadaka, right? So how does that not trace an ought ultimately back to a context of what is? What it, because uh, all you're saying is that one of the things that is in the world are oughts. Okay. That's all you're saying. And what this means is that if you start asking about value, about meaning, about purpose, 
about moral, uh, anything that has an art structure to it, it's godlike in the sense that even though you might explain why this is valuable or that is valuable, but if you keep going to well, what makes the valuable thing valuable, you end up with just, well, something is just intrinsically valuable. So all contexts are all? No. no. I'm not, there is context. There is context and there's not. Yeah. Um, this feels like, well, we've touched on this idea like all class, but like the idea of like God of the gaps, like where like God comes in where our understanding ends. Okay, there's a difference in God of the gaps and our, God comes in where our understanding ends. Those are very different. Yeah. Okay. Yes, they're very, very different. God of the gaps is literally where you have a gap. I do not know how you go from here to there and therefore I evoke God and I do not therefore need to worry about how you go from here to there. That is a very non-Jewish idea. Okay. God of the ends is a very Jewish idea, which is, and this is actually a verse in the Torah, Ani, or in, the, in, the, in the prophets, Ani Rishon, I am the first, Ani Achron, I am the last, Ubaladai and Elohim, without me there is no Elohim, and then we can debate what the word Elohim means, it can mean gods, it can mean powers, it can mean structure, so it's not a gap, it's like, I understand A, B, C, I just don't know how you go from C to F, so I'll employ God, no, 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 that's not okay. But but, but uh, before A and after Z. And what actually defines the relationships that allow you to move from A to Z, that is all God. So that is going to context, not facts. So it's not, so the issue with going way back to the beginning of class, the issue with telling the child, why, 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 and then ending with because Hashem is not an issue in terms of, like in reality, that is actually what we believe. But in terms of education, that's just a point. Because when you're saying that, what are you saying? You're saying, I am fed up dealing with this. I don't know how to deal with this. So instead of me acknowledging that, that's when I evoke God. Invoke, yeah, so that's why I invoke God. And that, that's, that's, that's wrong. Now, if you start off saying the first thing is everything is God. The end of everything is God. The structure of everything is God. Now, if you want to ask more specific questions within that context, I will answer them. So if the child hears in, in the place where you're coming from in your soul when you say, because Hashem said, is a place of relinquishing any sort of obligation to make sense and navigate your life or deal with something, then what they conclude is that Hashem is just a crutch to deal with the fact you can't deal with stuff. But if no, Hashem is invoked all the time and then fleshed out in detail, then, then you're perfectly fine. And then you can, by the way, say that Hashem said, now these are the things I don't understand. The problem is when you invoke Hashem specifically in cases where you're at your wit's end and you don't know what to do with things. So with the tracing, when you trace back an ought and you get to a broader context, that you can do that with like Judaism and, and it's okay to, to get to a place where it's just like, okay, this is just God. Oh, so this is what I want to get to, which is, if this is the case, the real question is, the real, the real question is, you can't keep asking why forever, but you can ask, what is the first ought that is going to be the context for all the other oughts, right? If I want to ask why about an ought, yeah, and I want to go all the way to the end, so let's take something about Judaism, yeah? Um, what's something that's really not understood about Judaism? Something weird? No, it's, it's a unique Kashrut. The Lisbon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, shotness. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's wool. 
Ought not be mixed with linen. Okay, that is a ought fact. Now, again, there's more details. What kind of wool, what kind of linen, there's only passages, but I'm not writing it all in the book, okay? Now you ask why. And we can go with a bunch of whys. Why, 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 why? But the question is, what is the ultimate context? What is the ultimate ought that is going to be the one that, that for Judah is, right? Because there... Any question of why, why should this be the case? Why ought this be the case? Why should this, is this valuable? Is based on something else being valid? Is something else being valid? So what is the ultimate value that would be on the other end of the side of this? God commanded it is not good enough. And the reason why God commanded it is not good enough is because A, the word God is not very helpful here. <laughs> Because God is just standing for ultimate context. So the reason why this ought to be the case is something to do with the ultimate context. Thank you. Commanded is obviously a very vague term because I don't really think you mean that. The only reason is because a booming voice came down from Mount Sinai. Well, some things there are. There's no like there's some, there's, the, the word command has to mean something more, which means you might want to explain what the meaning of the word command is. What is really a command all about? And blah, blah, blah. Then maybe. Okay. But that's then, like, which is what? Even still. Everything same applies even to chukin. And then there's another point, which is that um, an observation is made by all Jewish thinkers is that a concept of commands is that commands which are issued arbitrarily are not really commands. Mm -hmm. So if I command you to stand up, and there is literally makes no difference to me whether you stand up or not, and the only reason you stand up is simply because I ordered you to do so, that is not really a command. That is an exercise of um, power. power. It's a different idea altogether. A command is, is achieving something valuable to the authority figure. So a command doesn't really get you anywhere. It might be, if I ask the question, why ought you obey, and I say the authority figure commanded it, that's fine. But it doesn't explain why it's valuable. Okay? Um, so those are, those are two of the issues. So you, you can say the phrase, but it doesn't really work. So, but if the question was, why must I do this, then you could then say Then you could say that. Okay. And that's very, if I ask why is it an ought, but then if I ask why ought I comply, Okay. That might be an, that that might be an acceptable answer. Yeah. Is the context something about God's will and what God wants? So the, the, basically, that's what you're saying. The ultimate context would be what is the initial ought for God? What is the thing? What is the thing that God? We're going to use the word choose, and by choose, what do I mean here? That does it is it necessary or contingent? Contingent, but meaningful. So what is the thing? What is the thing that God chooses to? imbue meaning with initially. What is the initial thing that gets meaning, that gets ought, and that once you have that, you can then explain all the other oughts? The law of place. So this is the issue that when they, when, when and, and this is true, Chassidus says it one way, the Rabbi says another way, different people say it differently, but the idea is that if you ask, you can ask, what is this first ought? And then ask, why is this fact linked back to this ought. But you can't ask about the first ought. Mm -hmm. The first ought, either you know what it is, or you... Don't. I, well, if you do ask about the first ought... Well, then it goes back to asking about the context. It's like wielding a hammer on a screw. It doesn't get you anywhere. But sometimes there are questions. Now, what the problem is, is what if something is the first ought to me, but it is not the first ought? Right. See, what I will give you a common example of this, unfortunately, which is... Um, living. Most people who are healthy, they do not ask the question of why should I live? 
We don't get up in the morning and say, hmm, what's the point of living? Most of us just have a sense that living is just inherently a good thing to do. <laughs> However, if someone is very depressed, do they genuinely start trying to justify what's the point of continuing living? Okay, now, if those two people have a conversation, and so the depressed person says to the not depressed person, what's the point of living? There's no way, it's never gonna work because the, 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 the person who starts to justify the rest of why they should live is never gonna get them back to a place of health. And there really isn't anything that you can say to that person. So in fact, like when someone is depressed and they go for therapy or counseling or health beyond other things like medication, so blah, 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 but in the talk therapy thing is what is the point of living in order to justify living so that you have a reason to get up in the morning and supposed to give them your depression? Is that like going to solve the problem? Or does there have to become something shifting experientially for us that start to experience some kind of value in living for themselves? And then they might then have to conceptualize what that is in order to navigate their life in line with that so they don't get too far away from that. But that's, so that's more of a process of discovering rather than... Okay. So there is a problem, which is that if something is the self-evident ought to me, and it's not the self-evident ought to you, we're at an impasse to understand each other. So how? One second, which now we use another thing. What do you have more in common with? A depressed person or God? A depressed person. And if you and a depressed person can get at this impasse where you can't genuinely understand each other. So we're screwed. So then you and God, the only thing that your mind should be able to work off is accept this as the initial autumn work from there. We're screwed. But you may not be able to actually empathize and experience what experience that. Because you are a God or not the same kind of creature. So, what's the point? No. So, again, if something is valuable to me, can you acknowledge that it is valuable to me and then understand why, given that other things are valuable to me? So we're not talking about the context. So then in that case, the larger context, the larger context is me and what I value, what my initial ought is, and you can't contextualize that, and you can't even empathize with that because you're not me, but you can. What can you do that? You can accept that and then use that as a starting point to then understand why everything else is valid to me. And if you see there's something inconsistent between my fundamental value and some more smaller thing, you can ask, why? So if I tell you I value life, what do you think about? I value life. That's why I'm against abortion. And you say, yeah, but, but then why are you for the death penalty? That's fair, right? Yeah. yeah. Because there's like, I, I, look, you're pro, like the fact that you're for life and that's the thing you ultimately value. Like, I, I, maybe I, maybe I feel that way, maybe I don't feel that way. But if you're saying that's the initial thing that you value fundamentally, that's the context that makes all your other oughts make sense. Okay, if that's the case, I'll just accept that. That that's you. It's not me. It's you. But okay. But now you can't then tell me that you have to do us a lot of work explaining why your value of life above all else leads to favoring killing people. Now, one second. Maybe the person has a very sophisticated, nuanced way of actually doing that and getting from there to there, right? Or maybe they don't and they're being inconsistent and they have to change. But what you're dealing with is a specific fact about their oughts versus the larger ultimate context of their oughts. But the ultimate context, you just have to either, if you're informed about it, you accept it and, and or... But you can't do anything. You can't. You and you either are the same kind of being, so you have a similar sense, or you're not, and you don't have that sense. But that's all you can do. That's so depressing. Um, this is the what makes relationships both exciting and also stressful, because relationships really are all about navigating the fact that 
I have a set of things that I think ought to be the case and ought not to be the case rooted in some deep ought, and you have, and at some fundamental level, they probably don't line up exactly. And so when we get to that fundamental level, we just kind of have to agree to disagree and then still find a way of actually navigating life, interacting with each other, and the closer the relationship, the more interesting, and you know, that's what makes marriages and I deep friendships. Compromising. No, compromising. Like what? It sounds a little bit like random chance. No, it all, this is, the more, the more you can make space, space for the, the, someone else's ultimate sense of things, and the more you can make your facts have a richer and more nuanced thing, the more you can actually have deep connections with other people who fundamentally are coming from a different place than you. How do you to what extent are you supposed to accept, how do you know what's unreasonable and what's reasonable? That's, the, that's exactly the point, is that there is no reasonable here. Reasonable is coming secondary. It's coming second, because reasonable is like, is this fact reasonable given the larger context? But uh, the larger context, I basically have to make, I myself have to make a choice, which is, do I value having said person or being in my life such that I'm willing to make room for their ought? And if I choose not, I choose not, and I'll bear the consequences of that. But that's a choice you have to make. If your ultimate value is, you know, the eradication of all Jews, I'm not making space for you in my life. Like, that's it. I'm sorry. Like, that's your problem. Like, we're not, we're not. And if, but if your ultimate value is, is something, you know, that, you know, maybe isn't my ultimate value, but we can, I can still see how I can make space for you in my ultimate value, then okay. But yeah, that's, that, that is the, the adventure and the difficulty of navigating a, a relationship with another being. Yeah. To do for you to disagree is that the same as like I'm trying to like apply so some people like say that's your truth like postmodernism mm-hmm. what would you have to say about that I would say that that depends on what the issue is so do you think that in other words, like this. In other words, there are some things, I, I would say like this, there are some things that the way you subjectively experience it mm-hmm. is clearly makes room for the fact that it is, a, it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it is individual. For instance, let's say tastes in food. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I, very few people, I think, have this sense experientially that their taste in food is somehow matches up with an objective sense of better and worst foods. Um, now, then there are other things that that is not the case. So when people make moral claims... So that's where I really struggle. What's that? What's that? Like, okay, so when people make moral claims, when people make moral claims, they don't have that sense. And so if you're asking me, and you ask me, I think it's being disingenuous when someone says that's your truth and this is my truth about a moral claim. I think... A moral claim. A moral claim is like murder is wrong. Okay. And... But you can get more obscure than Right, like, okay. That's where, like, okay. Now, the thing is, though, the more nuanced and sophisticated your moral system is, and the more we ground our, the fact that we're talking about real-life scenarios, even if our moral systems are incompatible in some deep fundamental way, in a practical way, um, they might be very compatible, A, and B, there might be overlap, and things that, that, that although we, we might value the same things for different reasons, and the place where it's really incompatible don't often come up, should you have a right then, let's say, if there's some huge disagreement that you find to be very immoral, should you have the right to inflict your beliefs on that to make sure them not in, in immoral? I would, I would change the question, which is, do you have an obligation to? And, I'm, and my answer would be yes, with a lot of fine print. Okay. Because 
that you take you have to take into effect all of the all the things. But I mean, if I think that you know, eating children while they're alive is wrong, and somebody thinks that it's right, and it's like a spiritual superior, <laughs> I think I'm going to take a thing to like stop them from doing that and educate people that it's wrong, and the people that think it's right and trying to get other people to think it's right is to prevent them from doing that. And the great can change those people's minds. I will. Okay. Now. The question is, at what point do you have to be pragmatic and at what point do you have to realize that you end up doing more harm than good by trying to change people's mind? Those are, because that's why there's all the fine print comes in. Yeah. And by the way, just I want to say, I don't think that's, I'm going to say that I'm saying, I'm saying that I think that I'm saying that as my personal opinion, but I also think that's actually how everybody actually really is and that people who say otherwise are being disingenuous. I know, that's what really frustrates me. I don't want to convey that. And I also don't want to be... But that's my personal take. I get really take. frustrated sometimes in college when you say, no, no, it's just like your truth and my truth. And I'm like, no, like, it, it, I don't know. Yes. So there's more, it's more nuances than there's... It's, yes. So my question is that, is, that is like, we're all divinity, like we all have an aspect of God. Why don't we more relate to God than the depressed person? Well, that's true to the degree to which you, your godly soul is the dominant and part of your psychology. And the answer to that is unfortunately that most of us, our godly soul is a very suppressed part of our psychology. But you would say like Moshe would be closer to God than a depressed person. That, for the perspective of Kabbalah and Chassidus would say that, yeah. Right, that's, that's, where, that's why, you know, that's why in Hasidic movements the idea of a Rebbe takes on such prominence. Because the idea of, if any Jew is, for whatever reason, actually has their godly soul being the overwhelmingly dominant part of their psyche, well then actually they're in a certain sense closer to, to a godly perspective on the aughts than the human perspective. Okay, I just want to say one thing because we have to end the class and then you ask the question. So now the question really becomes not why... Um, should we will not be mixed with linen, but what is the original ought, the primary ought, and once I know what that is, then I can ask the question why. But if I don't have that first, I should not be asking why about anything. Wait, so if you don't have what first? If I don't have the what is the initial ought, I can't really ask. And so now the next class we're going to do is, well, what is the initial ought? And again, with the initial ought, all we can do is either accept it or reject it. There's nothing to understand about it. But then the hard work becomes how does that initial ought then explain all of the other oughts in Judaism? And so this idea that something can't be, something, something you know, it, it, it justifies others, it contextualizes others, but it's a, that is built into our very notion of meaning and purpose and value. Value judgments are rooted in some initial value judgments, which just is the case. And in the case of God, it is the case not because it's necessarily the case, it's the case because he, for lack of words, chose for it to be the case or wants it to be the case, which just means it didn't have to be, could have been otherwise. But given that that is the thing that is of initial value, then we can use that to then hopefully understand why everything else has the value that it does. An endeavor we may or may not succeed in depending on how informed and smart we are. But that's what we're going to do next time. Next week. Can we oh. guess the, the primary art? You're free to guess. There is one? There is. For that specific example? Yes. Yeah.